I am very excited about what we are about to do with Guy Ricards. We are going to do a survey of the symphonies of Rayfon Williams. And I just want to say that if you have any doubts about the greatness of the music of the 20th century, just listen to this program as we move through the nine symphonies of Rayfon Williams. They are uniformly beautiful and powerful. So the, the background on Guy, if you may recall, he's a freelance writer on music. He writes for everyone, including Gramophone, the BBC, International Piano and Musical Opinion. He is an honorary secretary of the music section of the UK Critics Circle and is a mentor in music journalism and criticism to a master's program at Hall University. He's written books on Hartman, Henze, John Sibelius, and three of the eight chapters in a book, The Study of John McCabe, whose music we talked about recently with Guy. And Guy, what's your experience of Rafe Von Williams before we sort of die then? Uh, well, I never knew the man himself. Uh, he died uh, when I was about two years old, but as far as the music is concerned. Um, it's been with me really from almost the outset of my journey through um, classical music. One of the first records I bought back in the, the LP days um, coupled Elgar's and Lucma variations with the fantasy on the theme by Thomas Tallis. Right. And I absolutely fell in love with the Tallis piece. I fell in love with Elgar, mind you, but uh, the Tallis piece particularly. And it's a curious thing, I was reading Mallory at the time, the Mort Darker, and I was, what, 14 or 15 at the time? So this is a Pre you were precocious. No, not really. I, I came to to, to, to classical music quite late. It was the film 2001 that, that turned it on for me, um, realizing actually that, this, that some of the things in the film were music and, and, and not sound effects. Or um, I had no exposure to it. It didn't come from a musical family. So I I um, started to listen to the proms and heard vast amounts of music. Um, that, UK lending libraries were a great source uh, for this. Every library had its own music section. You could borrow LPs and so on. That's what I did uh, myself. Yeah. Well, we've got nine symphonies ahead of us. And yeah. as you know, Guy, this, this first symphony called the C Symphony is one of my personal favorites. So yeah. how would you set this up for somebody who has never heard any of it? It's, um, in many ways, uh, the m most unusual of them, although that's <laughs> not really saying enough for Williams, because actually all of them are unusual in one way or another. He has a reputation of being quite conservative, a, a typical kind of English gentrified composer who, um, but he was extremely innovative. And this piece came together over a period of about six or seven years, it started as a series of songs about the sea for chorus and orchestra, or singers and orchestra, um, and eventually through different iterations, there was a version of it called The Ocean, then there's a tone poem called The Solent, which got caught up in the mix of the middle 1900s. But by 1909, he'd settled on the final form, so it is a large-scale work, as much oratorio, to be honest, as symphony, scored for chorus with a baritone and a soprano, a uh, soloist, and a reasonable orchestra. It's become a, a great uh, favorite with calls and societies up and down the country. And it's music of bold uh, and, and bracing character, as you'll hear right from the outset of the first movement. Um, all, the, all the texts are, are by Will, uh, by Walt Whitman, from his uh, leaves. Yeah, American poet. Whitman was very, very popular in England at the time. There were lots of uh, composers setting Whitman. Uh, Will Williams' previous call piece to this was Toward the Unknown Region, 
which is another written poem. So he was, um, Whitman was very much a fashionable poet at the time for, for setting, and has remained so through the 20th century. Lots of other composers have set his text as, uh, in text as well. So but of all Williams, he'd struck a chord, um, literally, in, in terms of, of, of the meaning and the association with the sea. And Williams was a country boy from, from Gloucestershire, so he didn't live by the sea. Unlike Britain, for example, he had an affinity with yeah. the sea. Um, this came through the poetry. Well, let's listen to the opening, Behold the Sea, uh, played by the London Philharmonic Choir and Orchestra, conducted by a close friend of the composer, Sir Adrian Bolt. I think if you've got a pulse, you're going to be drawn in to this music, the first symphony of Vaughan Williams' Sea Symphony. Yeah, it's one of the most impressive symphonic uh, debuts. People don't change to list Vaughan Williams as, as a, in that. He, but like Brahms, he, he delayed writing something. He was like 38 when he finished. Um, that's the music of a very experienced composer who knows precisely what he's doing, and it's so powerful. You hear, you feel the sea, and that you know, sort of behold the sea itself, and one of those limitless heaving breast bent the ships, and you you can right. feel them battered around in those flowing lines. Um, and he knew precisely what he was uh, was about. You got those brass themes played. Yeah, it's, it pulls you right in. The the next track is sung by the great late John Carroll Case, who, for my money, sings this kind of music and this piece as as well or better than anyone. Uh, Tell us what we're going to hear. So this is um, uh, the first movement is 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 built rather sectionally. This I think betrays its origin as a series of songs or a oratorio or a cantata. Um, and so this is a, a passage, I think, from Whitman's song for all seas or ships, and it's a setting of, and it's almost impossible to say this, to speak these words without singing the Vaughan Williams um, line, but today a rude brief recitative of ships sailing the seas, each with its special flag or ship signal of 
unnamed heroes in the ships, the waves spreading and spreading far as the eye can reach, the dashing spray in the winds piping and blowing, and, and you hear it in the music. But it's also, if you think of it, detach it from the vocal side, it's like an instrument in Carol Case's voice just playing a solo as you would get in an instrumental symphony. So it is both cantata, auto, and, and symphony as well. Well, let's hear John Carroll Case sing this second track from Vaughn Williams' Sea Symphony. So evocative, so evocative, and so British. Is that fair to say, Guy? I think it's absolutely um, British or, or, or very English. And in Carol Case, particularly, he had that, that voice, that wonderful diction. Um, you can hear that he's, from his accent, he's a, a, an English singer. He's a very good Bach singer as well, by the way, and uh, um, a very good oratorio baritone as well so but you can hear that that wonderful diction that wonderful the diction is great great in yeah. fact we're going to hear him again in this next track we are on the beach at night alone what are we going to hear so this is the slow movement now the second of the four movements very very quiet uh, opening and it sets this uh poem or, or poem by whitman uh, on the beach at night alone as the old mother sways her to and fro, singing her husky song, as I watch the bright stars shining, I think a thought of the cleft of the universes and of the future. One of the things that attracted Warren Williams, I think, to Whitman, and I, I suspect it was a, a view that was shared by lots of others, but for Warren Williams, I think it had special resonances, was the metaphysical and humanist ideals that you, you find in Whitman's uh, poetry. Well, Williams had, was the son of a vicar, a country vicar in, in Gloucestershire. He himself, after a brief spell of atheism, moderated it into a cheerful agnosticism. But you can tell all the way through, we looked at this when we did the program on Pilgrim's Progress, that he was a very spiritual uh, and, and metaphysical man and composer. So Whitman is exactly the right sort of poet. And this wonderful slow movement uh, is one of the most poetic and gentle things in the other world. Let's hear John Carroll Case on the beach at night alone.
that's very that has a spirituality to it, guy. It's very reverent yes. of um, the the element of the sea as as a sort of cradle of, of all nations. And, and the Whitman verse goes on about you know, all the identities that have existed or may exist, or lives and deaths, all of the past, present, future. This vast similitude spans them and always has spanned. And it's a wonderful lines and he, he, he responds with some wonderful um, uh, wonderful music as, as well and I think hopefully you, you listeners are beginning to see that the sea in all its moods are uh, being evoked here and in the third movement which is the scherzo we have something brighter and not a tempest but it whips up a little bit of, uh, of, of activity um, and this is after the sea ship, um, after the sea ship, after the whistling winds, after the white grey sails, taught to their spears and ropes, below a myriad, myriad waves hastening, lifting up their necks, uh, and so on. And you can really, again, you get that massive sense of movement um, of a boat sailing at full speed through the water. Well, let's hear as an excerpt of the scherzo, the waves from Ray Fawn Williams' Sea Symphony. An excerpt from part three of Vaughn Williams' Sea Symphony, his first symphony. Guy, I thought I heard a little rhythmic uh, repetition of what was in the first movement. Am I wrong? You know, you're not wrong at all. This is an integrated piece. And um, one of the, the aspects of Vaughn Williams' symphonism that would come out more and more it's, it's here only very much in embryonic form is, is the reuse of material from movement to movement to tie things together and sometimes it might be a rhythm or a succession of harmonies later on it becomes a theme when you get to the fourth symphony the whole work is based on two four note uh, motifs that pervade like Beethoven's fifth symphony that pervade the whole structure and so you're hearing, what you're hearing there, I think, is an initial step in that direction, uh, which is you know, not the attribute of a gentrified English conservative composer writing very nicely in his you know, drawing room. This is something um, that is uh, of an entirely different um, and a type of composition, far more integrated. Guy, I know that wasn't there a Vaughan Williams anniversary celebrated in the UK last year? Um, in 19, uh, he was born in 1872, so in 2022, it was his 150th right. anniversary. And did the Sea um, Symphony and, get many performances? 
Um, there were several performances, especially up and down the country in the more sort of amateur uh, choral societies, because it's it's a work that amateur choirs and local orchestras can do. I've heard several performances where you know, a good amateur orchestra can, can have a, 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 a really good crack at it you know, and, 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 and get to it. It's, um, so it's, it's within their um, capabilities. Vaughan Williams is always a practical composer. He, throughout all his pieces, he has this system of, of cueing and doubling where there are kind of clues for the players that we know when to come in. There are simplified lines that uh, um, some of the less able musicians could play and you had a few front desk uh, principals who would, who would carry the burden, but you got the weight of sound because um, you had other players there. So he was always a very practical uh, composer and, uh, yeah, the, the choral societies love it. Have you heard it live before? Several times. One of the first concerts I went to actually was a performance of this with... Uh, and conducted by Arthur Davison with um, Wendy Eaton. I'm trying to think who the... Um, it might have been John Shirley Quirk as the baritone. Oh, he's another good one. Yeah. Another great um, uh, uh, Williams interpreter. Yeah. Now, as we move toward the last movement uh, called The Explorers, uh, this is special to me, so, uh, Guy, I'm going to ask your indulgement. I'm going to read some of the text from this last movement. Sure. I wrote about this movement in a book that I published a few years ago called How to Keep from Losing Your Mind. And I, I, I described this, this music as really rising to the level of, of the words which are explicitly religious and spiritual and mystical. So let me read you a few uh, stanzas of what Whitman, what Vaughn Williams is going to set to Whitman's words. Oh, we can wait no longer. We too take ship all soul. Joyous we too launch out on trackless seas, fearless for unknown shores on waves of ecstasy to sail, caroling free, singing our song of God. Oh, soul thou pleasest me. I thee Ah, more than any priest also, we too believe in God, but with the mystery of God we dare not daily. O soul, thou pleasest me, I thee, sailing these seas or on hills or waking in the night, thoughts, silent thoughts of time, space, and death, like waters flowing, bear me indeed as through the regions infinite, whose air I breathe, whose ripples here, Lave me all over, bathe me, O God, in thee, mounting to thee, I and my soul to range in range of thee. I love that line, bathe me, O God, in thee. It's one of the best um, passages that that Vaughan Williams set here, and um, there's a very special change of the mood, I think, when and this is what you'll hear, is the way we can wait no longer, where um, the, the soprano uh, singer also um, comes into this... Uh, yeah, we hear Sheila Armstrong. Exactly, and I think it's finally at this point the human element on the water finally comes in, and the water then becomes very much a metaphor for that religious feeling, metaphysical feeling that goes through the poem. Um, it's from Passage uh, to India, but it's, as you read out, it's far more noticeably um, a addressing to God, uh, and, uh, to the divine, um, and perhaps the, the, the earlier uh, sections were. And it's just a wonderful uh, piece. It's a very long movement, by the way, we're hearing something. That's more we're going to hear only an excerpt. of it. Yeah, uh, excellent. John Carroll Case and Sheila Armstrong sing Vaughn Williams' Sea Symphony, the last part entitled The Explorers.
an excerpt from The Explorers. We didn't quite get to my favorite line, but we can certainly come back to it in a future program. In fact, Guy, I'm going to ask you to do that. <laughs> right, sir. And so we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Guy Ricards, and we're going to be looking at the Vaughn Williams second, the London Symphony, and the third, the Pastoral. We'll be right back. I'm back with Guy Ricards, a leading music critic, scholar, biographer, who talks to us right now from jolly old England. We're so glad Guy's with us again. We're moving through the symphonies of Rayfawn Williams, and we're going to take a look now and a listen to a London symphony, the second symphony from 1912 to 1913, just before the war, and we're going to be hearing a recording from the 1950s uh, with the London Philharmonic and, again, Adrian Bolt. These are considered classic recordings. Is that why you chose them, Guy? Yeah, in fact, this is the first recording uh, that was made in 1952. The London Symphony took a long time to get right. He wrote it, as you say, 1912-13, at the suggestion of George Butterworth, the composer, who was sadly killed in the First World War. Um, the score was lost because he'd sent it to Fritz Busch to perform before war broke out, and the, the score was never recovered. So Vaughan Williams, um, a friend of his, reassembled it from the parts from the first performance. And he took the opportunity to substantially revise it because it was well over an hour long, so he cut bits out, um, achieved what he thought was the final form, 1920, then 1933, in the middle of the fourth symphony, he had another go, and it's that that is the definitive um, version that uh, Bolt recorded uh, later. And just as we had a portrait of the sea, the sea symphony, this is a portrait of the city. Or rather, William said, you know, this could just as easily be symphony by a Londoner. So there's a certain element of how he viewed uh, the city of London. Um, he was a, uh, lived in and around London for, for many years. But it opens with this magical evocation. Yes, so magical. at night. Yeah, and the thing for your listeners to, to listen out for, this is a bit of a long track, so at about two and a half minutes in, listen out for the Westminster Chimes on the harp. Over the first movement, excerpt from the Second Symphony of Rayfawn Williams, the London Symphony.
Well, that really does start with a, a magic that you can imagine yourself walking along the Thames at night, looking up at the buildings and hearing the great Westminster clock. Yeah, it's a magical moment in the score. The whole uh, piece is built around his impressions of London at night and at day. And even the scherzo, which is the third movement, which we'll hear the beginning of in a moment, this is also a nocturne, but not the kind of quietude that we heard at the beginning of the first movement. This is busy London at night. And, and the composer wrote, if the listener will imagine himself standing on Westminster Embankment at night, surrounded by the distant sounds of the Strand, the great thoroughfare in the, that part of London, with its great hotels on one side and the new cut, which is a busy street on the other, with its crowded streets and flaring lights, it may serve as a mood in which to listen to this movement. And it's very evocative. Again, we have a record from 50 years ago, but sounding bright and clear. Uh, Sir Adrian Bold and the London Philharmonic Orchestra playing the scherzo from Vaughan Williams' Second Symphony. We see shoppers, theater goers, people on their way to restaurants, people about to have a night out on the town. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's 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 wonderfully evocative, um, but then it all changes. Um, that world so fondly depicted. In, in, in 1913, originally was was, was blown apart. Um, you know, less than two years later. Uh, well, I, that's what I want to ask you about. Yeah. The next symphony, the Pastoral from 1919. To my ears, it doesn't reflect the carnage of the First World War, which the composer von Williams himself served in. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, he said that the pastoral nature of the work is as much the fields of Flanders as it is the English countryside. Oh. He served as a, as a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps. He was, he was too old to be an enlisted soldier in, in 1914. But he um, saw but the he, slaughter. But he saw the slaughter and he, he ferried people backwards and forwards you know, from the front. Um, and it came out in this extraordinarily evocative score um, in the years immediately after uh, the armistice, we put the finishing touches to it. I think in about January of 1922, it makes it a very close contemporary of Nielsen's Fifth Symphony, which also has um, uh, resonances of, of, of the First World War. Um, it's music of remarkable serenity at times. Kind of, kind of kinship with the Sibelius Sixth in a way. It's extraordinarily subtle. This is this is no direct evocation the way that you get in the C Symphony or the London Symphony. 
This is music of loss and wistfulness of a world that's, that's long gone, and he's kind of looking back ah. um, over the fields at a world that just doesn't... A world that's just been blown up. This has been blown up, and it's, it's no longer there. The vistas may look the same, but it, it isn't. It's a different world. Yeah, and the Cri the really de Cour we'll hear in the fourth symphony. But let's listen yes. to the opening of this pastoral symphony, his third, played by, again, conducted by Adrian Bolt. The opening to Von Williams' third symphony, the Pastoral Symphony, written just after the close of World War One. I. I love those long string lines in that yeah. music. Yeah, it, it's very versatile and evocative. And you know, as I say before, the the countryside was the same. I mean, the war never visited England the way it did France and Belgium and so on. But the people who came back were not the same. And that, I think, is the sense you get there, because this is one of the most misunderstood pieces of Warren Williams. It, uh -huh. indeed, you know, comments of, oh, it's all just like a cow looking over a gate. Right. Remember Copeland, that. Copeland said it's a fifth symphony, rather. Listening to the fifth symphony was like looking at a cow for three quarters of an hour. Um, but it's, that's to totally misunderstand uh, the piece, because this is not about the English countryside. It's about the loss of it. Into it and listen to it, you suddenly realize that this is one of the most remarkable pieces of English orchestral music um, of the last 150 years. I couldn't agree more. Let's move on to the Lento Moderato, the second movement. Um, and we're going to hear a trumpet call in the first yeah. few so the moments of it. This is the, 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 the actually the closing piece, the closing part of it, and the, the, there are there are some bugle calls that percolate through this movement. Um, first on a natural horn, then it comes on the trumpet, and the cello has a go at it. And right at the end, it comes back in on a, a, a natural trumpet um, just to close off. So we'll, we'll, we'll hear that right at the beginning, and then the movement just fades away to nothing. All right, the second movement of Vaughn Williams' Pastoral Symphony.
the second movement of Rayfonda Williams' third symphony, the pastoral symphony, it almost has a requiem quality to it, Guy. Well, I think that absolutely that there is. That it's almost the last post that you hear um, on the, the natural horn there. It's a, um, an extraordinarily moving piece. And then, and as I said earlier, Vaughan Williams was something of an innovator of this supposedly calm and quiet piece. Well, actually, there's a bit more to it than that. And then, beginning of the finale, pulls out another little rabbit from compositional rabbit from the hat with a solo soprano singing vocalese just over a soft drum roll singing a sort of kind of themeless as well as wordless pentatonic theme that just catches um, yeah. the, uh, the spirit of the time it's a bit like that famous line in Wilfred Owen in the anthem for doomed youth and you know and, and each sad the bugle's calling from sad showers and uh, each night time drawing down the blinds. I can't quite remember the quote now. And there is something of that, um, yeah. again, memorial quality to this. Uh, yes. Music. Well, here we're going to hear that vocally sung by Margaret Ritchie, again with the London Philharmonic and Adrian Bolt conducting. Guy, this is music that can break your heart. It is. Um, I mean, that theme that rises from her voice, yeah. it just grabs you. But who else ever thought to start a symphonic finale like that? That's quite extraordinary for, for, for 1921 and 1922. Um, and really does play the lie to Bourne Williams as, a, as some kind of you know, conservative composer. He was innovating all the time uh, in terms of textures, in terms of form. One of the interesting things about this piece in particular is that the last movement is an epilogue. It's called epilogue and his great, one of his great symphonic innovations in the symphonic form was to have this epilogue finale that draws all the expressive strands together. Whether or not it includes musical references sometimes yes, sometimes no. But it draws all the Expressive strands together, and the, the expressive weight of the whole work finishes off in this uh, in this epilogue. And of course, it was a thing that was taken up by a lot of other composers, most obviously Arnold Bax, who extended it even wider, even further. And Bax is perhaps the one who was best known for it, but it was Vaughan Williams who had the idea 
and it's it's a, a development of that. Uh, it's my impression, nineteenth century form. Yeah, that's that's not easy to sing, is it? No, no, incredibly difficult to sing. There's no, um, there's nowhere to cover. Really, there's no <laughs> hiding. The things are there, exposed and naked, almost in terms of a vocal writing. Just that that drum roll underneath. There's no other cover there for that. It's got to get it absolutely right. Not that Richie was a wonderful singer. Well, Guy Ricards, thank you for taking us on this journey through the first three symphonies of Ray Fon Williams. I assume on the next program we'll do numbers four, five, and six. We will, but we will start with the work that comes between the third symphony and the fourth, or one of the works that comes between the four, which is his setting of the mass, the mass of oh, That would be nice. Well, thank you again, Guy, for taking the time to share with us this this incredible palette of sound from Ray Vaughan Williams and uh, look forward to having you back I look forward to it too so all of you are listening I'll be back this day and this time next week if you have any comments or questions about church and culture you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at avemariaradio.net